This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. You're in the gospel of God's grace. I hope you were encouraged by that song. If you're able to remain standing for the reading of God's word, I invite you to open to Galatians chapter 2. In the New Testament, if you want to use one of the Black Pew Bibles, that is on page 972. 972. For those of you who were here last Sunday and you were able to stay through second hour and maybe and into the baptism, what a day, huh? what a great day last week was uh, to share in the supper after the word and then hear the testimonies of those four who were baptized. It reminds us that uh, the church is the temple of the living God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he is present in the midst of his people. Also give thanks to God for the 270 boxes that were turned in for Operation Christmas Child. Just tremendous for that. Praise the Lord for your giving. We pray, pray that those will be uh, reaching children all over the world and God will use the gospel that will be presented as a result of that. Well, if you're joining us this morning, we've been studying uh, the book of Galatians. The Apostle Paul wrote this early in the first century in response to the fact that the gospel that he preached was being threatened by false teachers who had come to these churches in Galatia. And this morning, we are in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and said before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, you give life to your word. Indeed, you worked through the ministry of Paul. You worked through the ministry of Peter. We pray you would work now. That you, oh God, would work in each of our hearts that which each of us need. That you would give clarity to your word. And that it would impact each of us for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may have a seat, yeah. Threats to the purity of the gospel are, are nothing new. 
They're present in every generation. And today's primary threat to the gospel may not be the attempt to add to faith in Jesus obedience to the law of Moses, per se, in order to be set right with God. But nevertheless, there are always false gospels being trafficked and being promoted. And often the greatest threats to the gospel are those that arise within the visible church, within the visible people of God, uh, people who identify themselves as Christians, people who identify themselves as believers and followers of Jesus, and yet they begin to embrace thinking that's different from the gospel of God. They begin to communicate and preach and write about a gospel that is different from the apostolic gospel. And often they're not able to succeed in a frontal attack, and when they can't succeed in a frontal doctrinal attack, they often resort to what Dr. Harmon calls leveraging influence with key people in the church. <laughs> I like that phrase, so I took it, yeah. Leveraging influence with key people in the church. You know what I'm talking about. We know what he's talking about, the, the who's who, you know? And the so-and-so, I think, agrees with my view and so forth. And what happened in Corinth? I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, right? Today, this takes the form, often, of appealing to Christian celebrities, uh, Christian uh, authors, popular Christian personalities, and often it's finding some obscure quote of theirs from somewhere, some sermon, some, th some writing long ago, clipping it out, and maybe, maybe even taking it out of context often, and, and, and posting it on some blog, you know, sending a, uh, some email or some text, and, you know, stirring the pot. <laughs> amplifying some debate, but always what I'm getting at is this, it's a, it involves appealing to recognized personalities, appealing to people, individuals. And this is what was happening in Paul's day as well. In some way, we don't know exactly how, but we've mentioned already that in some way, Paul's relationship to the, to the Jerusalem apostles was in question. In some way, how exactly, we're not sure. Perhaps, perhaps these false teachers were portraying, portraying Paul as a, as a bad or even rebellious pupil of the Jerusalem apostles that later went rogue, you know, became a maverick, uh, changed things. Or perhaps they were saying that Paul's unqualified because he has no connection to the Jerusalem apostles. And, He's never sought their affirmation. Who is Paul anyhow? He was never with Jesus when he was walking like the others. He's, so we don't know exactly, but we know the one thing is clear to us is that they were leveraging, they were leveraging the Jerusalem apostles. They were appealing to them and they were contrasting them in some way with Paul. And so what we learn from this is that the battle for the purity of the gospel, beloved, is never, never about personalities. It's never about fame. It's never about recognition. It's never about popularity. It's never about the size of the church or the amount of influence. But the battle for the purity of the gospel is always a struggle to maintain the truth of the gospel. <clears throat> Excuse me to maintain the truth of the gospel. 
And that's what Paul says in verse 5. And when he says the truth of the gospel, he's speaking of the content of the gospel itself. The doctrine of the gospel and its meaning. The significance of what it means that, that Jesus died for our sins and what was raised the third day for our justification. What do those things mean, you see? That's what the struggle is about. It's never about who's who. Never about personalities or fame or how, much, how many followers a person has. It is about the purity of the truth of the gospel. And in chapter 1, at the end there, we saw that Paul began his defense against these false teachers. He began his defense of the gospel and his authority as an apostle. He said, my gospel is not man's gospel. Remember that. I did not receive it from a man. I was never taught it by a man. I received it, remember, from, by a divine revelation, an apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. And so he says, I never, I never sought the ratification of the Jerusalem apostles. I didn't need it. I saw Christ raised from the dead. And so I went to Arabia, and I did what I was called to do. And so in chapter 1, his, Paul's emphasis was his independence from the Jerusalem apostles because he didn't need their authentication. He had met the risen Christ. But now in chapter 2, he gets to, well, yes, I have. I did go to them. And, and you know what happened? They affirmed my gospel. They added nothing to my gospel. That's his argument now. That's what he's doing here. He's recounting a second visit uh, to Jerusalem. And he says that in this visit, the gospel he preached was affirmed as the true gospel. Now how this came about is what we'll learn from this morning. And uh, there, there are really two stages here in verses 1 through 10. And the first one is the danger of the, uh, to the gospel revealed. And the second half is the truth of the gospel preserved. So first of all, the danger to the gospel revealed. And for the first time, uh, Paul is now opening up the issues here more directly. I've mentioned what they were because we've read again and we're trying to understand this in context. But as the letter flows for the first time now, Paul is really touching on what is the issue. And so he recounts this second visit to Jerusalem and he begins telling us some of the circumstances. He tells us the timing of it. He tells us who was with him when he went. He tells us why he went. He tells us the goal, uh, his personal goal while he was there. The timing first, he says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now, we're not exactly sure. Some of you know this. We're, we don't know when he, after what these 14 years. Is it after the first three years, which would mean 17 years since his conversion, which would mean that this coincides with what happens in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council? Or does he mean just after four, 14 years after my conversion, I went up there, which would then mean that this coincides with Acts 11. I think it's the second. I'll explain why in just a minute. But the reason he went, he says, I went up because of a revelation. He uses that, that, that word again, an apocalypsis, a revelation was given to me. What that revelation is, he does not tell us here. He doesn't tell us how it happens. But I think his emphasis is that the Jerusalem apostles did not send for him. He didn't go because he was forced to go. He wasn't sent to the principal's office. 
That's not why he went. He says, I went because of divine leading. God led me to go to Jerusalem, not the Jerusalem apostles. So what was this divine leading? How, it didn't, how did it come about? We're not told there, but I would venture to say that, it, that be, because I think this coincides with Acts chapter 11, that the divine leading, the revelation that Paul's talking about, was the prophecy given by a man named Agabus, which is recorded there in Acts chapter 11. He was a prophet from Jerusalem, a Jewish prophet, who came down to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas was, and there he said, uh, he gave a revelation that there was going to be a great famine in Judea, and the church at Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were, decided to take a famine relief offering, and it says in Acts 11 that they, they sent the offering for famine relief in the hands of Paul and Barnabas. Acts 11. I think that's what he's referring to here, that Paul's saying that the revelation was the need to go to Jerusalem, and what Paul's saying is, while there, I took advantage of that trip, and I sought out a meeting with the apostles. You notice, another reason I don't think it's Acts 15 is because he says in verse 2 that he set this, uh, his gospel before them privately. Privately, verse 2. Acts 15 was a large public gathering of the apostles and other witnesses. And so I think this is, this is what he is referring to. And he mentions who went with them. He says Barnabas and Titus, a Jew and a Gentile. Barnabas, uh, a Jewish Christian born in Cyprus. And Barnabas played an important road, a role in both the Jerusalem Jewish Christian church and later in Antioch in the Gentile Christian church. So Barnabas had a, a significant um, presence in both churches. And he took along with him also Titus, he says, who was a Greek, meaning he was a Gentile. And so they went together into this meeting, which he calls a private meeting. Uh, and he said before them, the gospel, he says that I preach among the Gentiles. Here's his goal, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now that sounds strange from Paul, doesn't it? I know sometimes when you first read that, you might think, well, what's going on in Paul's head? What do you mean I was not running in vain to make sure? You, was Paul starting to lose confidence in the gospel? Was he saying, I needed to make sure I was preaching the right gospel? Absolutely not. That's not Paul at all. The whole point of this letter is that he has the true gospel. And chapter one is that he received the gospel from Christ. He has no doubts about whether his gospel is vain, his gospel is true. What he's not sure about is do they agree with me? What are they saying? Maybe, maybe they do agree, or maybe their names, Peter and James and John, are just being leveraged by these other people. Paul was worried about the practical ramifications if there was not real unity in the gospel 100%. He often referred to his, his ministry as running, running, uh, serving. I think what Paul's worried about is going from town to town and preaching the gospel, building up the church, and then here come these Judaizers. They come along and stir things up and say, no, faith in Jesus is not enough. You need to add obedience to the law of Moses. And this starts confusing the church and starts breaking down the unity of the church. One of Paul's great joys, he tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, 
He calls it a mystery that was not known under the old covenant was what? That the new covenant people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, would be one new man, he says, Jew and Gentile together in one body, one temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. And I want to know that I'm not ministering in vain when I preach the gospel to bring Jews and Gentiles together and then these other people are going to come behind and tear it down by saying, no, you got to become a Jew too. So that's what he's worried about when he says that. If everywhere he preached this would happen, he would feel like his ministry was in vain. One step forward, two steps back. (laughs) And so he goes there to clear this up. The nature of the danger and the source of the danger are revealed here. The nature of the danger we see in verse 4, that they might bring us into slavery. What happened in this private meeting, he says, verse 4, brothers, false brothers, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. What's Paul referring to? He's saying, When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ and has become justified before God, we are set free, set free from bondage in our conscience to the need to do something to attain the love and mercy and forgiveness of God. And these people were uncomfortable with our freedom in Christ. And they came in, they sought to put us back under the chains of the law of Moses. The bondage, that's what he's talking about. In chapter 5, what does Paul say? For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What a way to refer to the law of Moses. In in Romans, Paul will say, is the law evil? No, the law is good, you see, but the law is abused. It's misused. And it's not to be added to faith in Jesus Christ as a means of, of, of being set right before God. That's being brought back under bondage, and Paul would not have it. But that was the danger, the danger that was happening there at that time. The question was what? Is is faith in Jesus sufficient? Is my faith in Christ and what he's done, is that enough for me to be accepted by God? And these false brethren said, no, it's not. You can imagine they're saying, this Greek right here, this man, this Gentile, Titus, he needs to be circumcised or he can't be assured that his sins are forgiven. What a thing to say, huh? He cannot be assured that he is right with, the peop- with God and he belongs to the people of God unless to his faith in Jesus he adds the law of Moses and he being a male, he needs to be circumcised. That was the danger. For the first time, he begins to unfold it here in his letter. Anytime you add anything to faith in Jesus, you come under bondage. And it may not be the complete law of Moses, let's say. But anytime you add anything to faith in Jesus, to be at peace with God and know the peace of God and rest in, in your knowledge of God, you, you will never have that peace. Why? Because you will forever be chasing whatever it is you added. Always wondering, always trying, always attempting, always trying to add up. What did we read together from Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We don't need to strive to be assured of God's love, to be assured that, uh, that we belong to Him and He to us. And so that was the nature, uh, the nature of the danger and the source of the danger I think really should make us tremble because what he says is that the source was what? False brethren. Wow. False. Pseudo. Pseudo. Adelpha. Pseudo brothers. People. That's disturbing, isn't it? <laughs> People who thought they were brothers presented themselves as brothers who said faith in Jesus is a good thing but they are false pseudo brothers which means what? They're not brothers at all. They do not belong to the children of God, the people of God. People who identify themselves as Christians, call themselves Christians as Jesus said in Matthew 7. Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. He says, I'll say, who are you? I, depart from me. I never knew you. It's a very, a, very, a very troubling thing to think that this could happen, but it happened right there in the presence of Paul and Peter and James and John. False brethren. And what, what made them false? Why were they false? Meaning not true believers. Not because, they, not because they were living wicked lives filled with debauchery, debauchery and immorality and, and they wouldn't repent from this sinful life. No, not at all. They were very religious, very scrupulous. And they believed that faith in Jesus was necessary but because they would not forsake their self-righteousness. They would not forsake their, their pride. They would not humble themselves before God they would not simply rest all their faith and hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ they felt you needed to do you must do you must keep the law of Moses on top of it they would not accept the fact that Christ alone his dying and doing is sufficient. And of course, this error is not anything new, right? It's as old as is as old as making fig leaves to cover yourself up. It goes that far back, and it went back into the history of, the, of, of Israel, and, and Jesus' teaching touched on this very sort of thing, right? Jesus told a parable once that Luke records in his gospel, Luke chapter 18, a par parable that we call the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18 verse 9 says, He, that's Jesus, also told this parable. L listen to who he was directing it. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Not trusted in the grace of God but trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. And here's the parable. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, that is a, an ardent Jew who keeps not only the law, but all the traditions and things added to the law of God. Overly scrupulous, very religious. So one of them was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Don't think IRS. <laughs> Some people here may actually work for the IRS, right? A tax collector to them was a traitor. 
These were Jewish people who would uh, collect from their own people for Rome, the empire, and any bit they can get more than Rome was asking, they got to keep. To them, they were scum. And so he says, two men went to pray. One was a Pharisee, a very religious man. And the other was a tax collector. And everyone said, boo, in the crowd, you know. And then he said, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes, 10% of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He just beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, repeatedly. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you, this man, that's the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You can imagine the crowd going crazy at that point. This man, that man? A tax collector? Yes. He went home. Justified. Because he humbled himself. He rested on God's mercy. Not on his religiosity and his self-righteousness, his pride. To think that he could do something that would commend himself to God. He would not do that. And so he was the justified one. Anything you add to faith in Jesus is self-exaltation. Even if you think in your mind, I'm trusting, I'm saying that I'm saved by 99.5% what Jesus did, and I'm just point, point 0.5 of 1% is me. <laughs> that point 0.5 will condemn you. Because you would not humble yourself before God. And admit that your soul, your soul recourse, your soul hope is the mercy of God found in Jesus and what he did. To add to Jesus, we've said several times, is what? To subtract from him. It is to diminish what he did, make less of it than God the Father makes of it, and to make more of yourself. I came, I, I came across uh, through my reading this week, one connecting to another, one thing t connected to another, and it led me to a, uh, a sermon by the great evangelist uh, uh, George Whitfield, the sermon called Method of Grace, well-known sermon. I'd read it before years ago. He's, he's preaching there from Jeremiah that woe to those who say peace, peace, when there is no peace. And he turns it into a sermon about uh, saying peace to, your, to yourself when there is no peace because of what you think is what will make you right before God. And he describes, I'm paraphrasing him now, I'm not quoting directly, he says that when a person uh, comes to faith in Christ, he or she not only needs to recognize their sin and repent of their sins, but they need to repent of their duties and their best performances. In other words, uh, you need to repent not only of your sinful actions, but you need to repent of your self-righteousness. Because before God, they're nothing but filthy rags. So says the scriptures. 
And so to think that we can do anything at all to commend ourselves to God, Whitfield says, that's to say peace, 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 when there is no peace. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's the only way. It's a humbling way, but it is the only way. And so this was the danger to the gospel. And Paul finally begins to reveal it. False brethren snuck into this meeting. They wanted to take these men bondage back under the law of God, the law of Moses. And I think the main point was probably circumcision because of what he says there. And then we see that the truth of the gospel prevailed. The truth of the gospel was preserved. The first thing we note is how Paul and Barnabas reacted to all this. Verse 5, he says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. <laughs> I've always, these are one of those meetings that I've always thought about, oh, to be a fly on the wall and to have seen that. <laughs> To have heard that great debate as they were trying to bring Paul back under the bondage of the law and Paul saying, I did not submit for one second to that false gospel. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved, he says. Which is what we have, we've said repeatedly, this is what we're called to do as well. They contended for the purity of the gospel. Another reaction was verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, meaning a Gentile. Maybe your translation says he was not compelled to be circumcised. Don't think that he's talking about what was inside Titus's heart. Like, uh, was he compelled to do it? No, no, he's talking about what came from the outside. In other words, he wasn't forced by whom? By the Jewish, by the Jerusalem apostles. They did not force him to be circumcised. Paul uses this verb several times in this letter. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says about Peter later, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And then in chapter 6, I've read it before in verse 12, it says, uh, those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Paul uses the same verb here in chapter 2, and he says, Titus was not forced to be circumcised. And what that means by implication is that Peter, James, and John, who he tells us later were the ones there, did not force Titus to be circumcised. Another result was he said, they added nothing to me. Verse six, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. And by that he means nothing to my preaching, nothing to the gospel that I preach. They added nothing. They did not require Titus to be circumcised. It's kind of a, a very important moment here in what Paul is, con is uh, communicating. Now, I've told you before, it seems like Paul is pretty heated about this, right? And the way he writes later, he says, you foolish Galatians and and things of that nature, and there's some of that here. In fact, this has been noted to be the most convoluted section of Paul's writings ever, anywhere. You notice the parentheses and the commas and the dashes, because in the original text, it's hard to make sense of the grammar, and there's incomplete sentences. It's almost like, it's like his emotions is getting the better of him as he was writing to the Galatians. Remember, when scriptures inspire the Holy Spirit, but it, he does not uh, obfuscate or bypass the human, human being, and so here's Paul. He's 
just, he's trying to sum up what took place. And we read here these statements that seem like, they seem pretty strong. He says, from those who seem to be influential. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential and later refers to them as the pillars. It may sound like he's being disrespectful. It depends on how I would read it, huh? If I say, from those who seem to be influential, you know, the pillars. If I read it like that, you'd think, well, he's really being disrespectful. But some scholars point out that it could be really a present idea. Those who seem influential because of what these false teachers tell you they are. And they may have been calling them the pillars. And so Paul uses that phrase to make clear, you know. In other words, these false teachers could have very easily been saying, that's great, Paul, but what do the pillars say? And Paul's saying here, you want to know what the pillars said? (laughs) They said they agree with me. (laughs) I think Paul's walking a fine line between being respectful He does respect them. Earlier he says, they were apostles before me, chapter 1, verse 17. He does submit his gospel to them, right? So he's walking a fine line between being respectful and at the same time not falling into the error these people fall into, which is what? That God has favorites? God has no favorites. I'm not going to venerate them like they're something more than a man, you see. The best of men are men at best. So Paul's walking this fine line. He's trying to to get his point across. So I think that's what's happening here. The truth of the gospel was preserved. Titus was not forced to be circumcised. Paul, Barnabas, and Titus did not yield for one second. And the Jerusalem apostles did not add anything to what Paul was preaching. Praise God. They saw it the same way. And how did they come to that conclusion? It's because of what he says, these verbs. They saw, they saw something, and they perceived something. Those are the two main verbs that follow this. What did they see? Look at verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw, what did they see? When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. What they saw is that there was one gospel, and that comes across more in the original language because here in the translation, it can almost sound like there's two gospels. There's one gospel for the circumcised and one gospel for the uncircumcised, but in the original text, he, he doesn't repeat the words one gospel. There's only one gospel for the circumcised and the uncircumcised. That's how it reads. That's what they saw. They saw one gospel. For the circumcised, the, 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 the Jew and the uncircumcised Gentiles. But it's the one gospel. That's what they saw. That's the conclusion they came to. And how did they come to this conclusion? Because they, they recognized the powerful working of God in both Paul, just like in Peter. Verse 8, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, to the Jews, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. The important word there is work. That's a a verb that he uses, a favorite verb of Paul, energeo. You hear the English energy. He who energized Peter's ministry energized my ministry. (laughs) He who showed the power in Peter's preaching 
demonstrated power in my preaching, and they couldn't deny it. And that's what they saw. God's working in the lives of, of Paul, just like in the, in the life of Peter. This is one of Paul's favorite verbs. He likes to, he likes to refer uh, to his ministry as being energized by the, by the power of God. I think that what this is is an indirect reference to the Holy Spirit. In Colossians chapter 1, 29, Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, all his energeo, God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. In, 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 in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, when he came to the Corinthians, he says, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. He means it wasn't about human philosophy, he says, but in demonstration of the spirit and of energel, the power, the energy of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is referring to here. He'll say it also again in Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. In other words, they, they could not deny the fact that though Paul never walked with them when Jesus was on the earth those three years of his ministry, and though they weren't there on the Damascus road when Paul says he saw the resurrected Jesus, they could not deny that God was working through this man the same way he was working through Peter. And people were being converted and praising the living God. Uh, they, 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 couldn't, they couldn't deny that. There will always be fruit in gospel ministry of some kind. It's never the same amount, and it's not always good, right? Uh, re, 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 rejection is part of the fruit at times, but what they saw in Paul was enough to convince them that it, it's, it's true. And maybe it was Titus himself there as a testimony. And, and Barnabas talking about what happened on Cyprus and, and the other Galatian churches and so forth. This is important. We should pause here for a second and think about this. What the apostles did, the Jerusalem apostles. Dr. Harmon, on his commentary again, he says, a mark of Christian maturity is the ability to recognize that the same God is at work even in the most diverse ministries. The same God at work in diverse ministries, not diverse gospels, no. Not different gospels. The same gospel, the one gospel in diverse ways, in diverse contexts, in diverse settings, through diverse ministers, and so forth. Because it's never about personality about the truth and the purity of the gospel. And that's something, I think the sooner you recognize and get over the fact that not everyone has to look exactly like you and do everything the same way we do it, and yet God is at work in them, if there is fruit in their lives that's genuine, and they are committed to the true gospel, the sooner you begin to learn that, the more your joy and wonder about the power and the beauty of the gospel and the nature of the church, the more that will flourish, you see. This was a steep learning curve for me, uh, especially coming out of seminary, because in seminary they beat into you, this is the way, this is the way, right? 
And I mean the way about everything, not just the gospel you preach, you know. But this is the liturgy, this is the form, this is the sequence, these are the songs. And uh, over and over, and you come out, you think, this is the way. And then you travel to San Quintin, Mexico. And you go to Honduras in the mountains. And you see, the, and you recognize the grace of God empowering the same gospel in people that don't look or act any way like you at all. And that's glorious, you see. It is an apologetic, it is a defense of the truthfulness, the veracity of the gospel and its power. When we see what we have here at GBC, let's say right here at Grace is what? People from so many diverse backgrounds, ethnicities, different socioeconomic uh, positions, working together under the one gospel and seeing, and seeing fruit. And then not only with each other here, but with our mission partners who serve in different cultures, under different governments, who serve under different pressures and different levels of hostility, partners that we have in South Africa, in Spain, Honduras, in, in Costa Rica, in Mexico, in, in, in the Asian Pacific, and so forth. When you see that, that is, that is an apologetic for the truthfulness of the gospel. I'm blessed because I get to travel to see those things. You should be praying right now for the church in Costa Rica because over this last week or two, I've been in communication with one of the pastors there because they're suffering under, they're suffering under a lack of this very understanding. And that is people who want not only gospel purity, but they want, they want unity in all the forms and not the diversity. Some of these uh, reformed evangelical churches there have, have been gotten hold of some of the um, movements up here in North, in, in, in North America of certain uh, Baptistic groups, certain reformed Baptists, I won't name individuals, but these people who not only say you're not a true church, not only if you don't adhere to this confession, which never existed before that year, but you know what I mean, right? You're not even a genuine Christian if you don't adhere to this confession, and you don't do your liturgy and don't dress the way we do, and don't stand up there the way do, don't, we do, don't sound like we do, don't sing like we do. If you're, that, if you're not that, we're not even sure you're a Christian. And some of this has infiltrated one of the churches in San Jose, Costa Rica that we partner with and the poor uh, the brother there is being devastated. And so the truth of the gospel then was preserved. And what was glorious is that they recognized the diversity that God has. You know, Peter is going to look one way. His, group, his audience is what? It's, it's Jewish people in Judea, in Jerusalem, and, and, and where Paul goes to preach, folks, is going to look very different in the temples of Corinth. <laughs> but the same God is energizing both ministries because they have the true gospel. And the last verb is they perceived. Paul says, verse 9, lastly, he says, why did they support us when James and Cephas, that's Peter, when James, he finally names the individuals he met with, when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, 
that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. That's really the climax of this whole paragraph. What? They gave the right hand of fellowship to us. The pillars that you appealed to. (laughs) The pillars that you say, don't agree with me. They gave us the right hand of fellowship, a sign in their culture of oneness. Togetherness, he says. And why? Because they perceived the grace that had been given to me. Now, I don't think he's talking about the same energeo, the fruit. Uh, I think he's talking about the grace of his calling to be an apostle. Paul often refers to his apostleship as a gift of grace to him. He does so in Romans uh, chapter 1. He does so in Ephesians 3, 7. I'll read that. He says, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. I think Paul is referring to the fact that they recognize not only that God was using him, but they also affirm that he is an apostle. He's been given the same grace that Peter and the rest of them have been given, which was a calling, a calling, being sent as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that that led finally to what? That beautiful sign of unity with diversity. And they shook Paul and Barnabas' right hand. A sign of oneness and, and fellowship. And then he, he offers this one closing note. It's interesting, verse 10, we'll, we'll stop there. Verse 10, he says, only, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Don't allow your mind to think that, well, in the end, they did add something to the gospel. (laughs) No, because he said they added nothing to me, to my preaching. But they did ask one thing at the end, that we remember the poor. And it makes sense if this was Acts 11. He was there with an offering from the Gentile church in Antioch. Witherington in his commentary, his historical commentary says, not only was there a famine in Judea this year, if that was the case, but it was also a Sabbath year for the Jews, so economically the Jews in Judea were just broken. And so it says the only thing they said at the end was, don't forget those who are poor. Paul said, that's the very thing I'm eager to do. Maybe he even said, that's what I came here to do. Here's the gift from Antioch, you know. And so we remember that, uh, that um, gospel truth embraced by the power of the Spirit also produces gospel fruit. In this case, what's the great commandment? Love God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So no, this wasn't some addition to the gospel. There's two central themes here I want us to think about here, and that is what? Gospel purity and gospel unity. And it's important to understand the relationship between the two. That gospel unity, that joy of peace and diversity and people being together comes from what? Gospel purity. Uh, That must be first. The truthfulness of the gospel is what unites us. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Yes, one gospel. And if we want to experience the beauty of that handshake between Peter and Paul, 
the joy that they must have experienced of mutual fellowship and then working together in love to extend mercy, it, has, it, is, it is built upon what? Gospel purity, the truth. Thinking the same about the gospel, that's the first one. We also have to follow that balance that Paul was striking with these people, with the Jerusalem apostles, which was what? Which was to honor and respect those whom God places in leadership in the church. And and that means the local church, because there's no mention of denominations in the scriptures, right? But at the same time, like Paul, recognize what? That they're not without fault. That we don't venerate man. We keep that balance somehow that Paul says, I respect them. They were apostles before me. I put my, my gospel before them. But what, what they are when it comes to whether the gospel is true, what they are makes no difference to me. What matters is what? Are we trusting in Christ alone? That's what matters. It's important today because in our culture, of religious superstars. There's a lot of people don't think long enough. They don't look deep enough. But simply quote a celebrity here and appeal to a big name over there. Boy, I can't count how, how many times I've received an email with a link from people. Go listen to what he says. Have you heard what so and so said? Is it gospel? That's what matters. Is it true? And you see here the value, the value of clear uh, condensations of summaries of doctrine throughout the history of the church, right? The first five universal creeds, you know, of of the historical church. And then the, the confessions of the Protestant Reformation. And you know what blesses me? What blesses me is when some of you have come to this church and, and start getting to know you. Eventually the question comes up, well, how did you, what brought you here? How did you find us? Well, I found you on the internet. And immediately I'm going, okay, here we go. This could go, this could go south. <laughs> but I'm blessed by those that say, I went to your doctrinal statement. I went to what we believe and there I appreciate the fact that you acknowledge the historic creeds and you said that you are in broad and basic agreement with the, Protest- the, the confessions of the Protestant Reformations without saying particularly only this one is against that one. But then you added a doctrinal statement that, that defines where you stand on issues that are current today that weren't current in the first centuries and weren't current during the Protestant Reformation. I appreciate that and I appreciate that about you, you see. Because you're not here because of personalities. You're here because of gospel purity. And it, it reminds us of the importance of these documents because they, pre, they provide guardrails of protection for you. For you, so you can say, hey, you, 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 you say this in your statement, but it seems like you went off the track over here. So, so which is it, you see? And we live in a day when that's becoming all the more important. And so I'm grateful for that. Moody in his commentary says, humans always need a point of unity in order to unite. If it's not doctrine, 
then likely as not, it will be personality. And personalities end up dividing. If it's not unity around the truth of the biblical gospel, it's not unity worthy of having. And that so-called Christian unity will rapidly disintegrate. And so it is. If we want to experience that, that joy of what it means to be in Christ together with people that are so diverse and labor together with people that are in different parts of the world and have our hearts expand with the, the joy of understanding uh, how the gospel penetrates different places, it's going to require what? You being passionate, not about personalities. Not about how many likes somebody has, how many books somebody has, how many followers somebody has, but being passionate about the gospel, the truth. And I know there will also be some of you here today who maybe feel Somewhat like Paul was hinting at when he said, I was wondering if I was running in vain. And you feel like he did with the fact that you serve or you do something in your ministries and (laughs) you wonder if it's vain because personality clashes, relationship clashes, different opinions, feels like it's tearing down what what you're investing your whole life into, you know, in ministry. Well, I want to remind you, it doesn't matter what any human thinks. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 31, 58, excuse me. Therefore, because of the resurrection, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not, what? In vain. Never. Let's, let's pray this morning. Before you close your eyes, don't bow your head. Uh, just to mind you that uh, what before I pray for our time as we finish today together uh, Matt mentioned that today we'd be taking the benevolent offering at the end let me just say a little something about it one first how fitting that it is that it follows Paul's statement that he only asked that we remember the poor and you have all been faithful to give to the benevolent fund throughout the year but once in a while we take a public offering because we want to accentuate and remind us all that there is a fund, it's called the Benevolent Fund. We use it to meet the needs of individuals and families in the church, but also people outside the church, and also to help support ministries that are seeking to extend mercy in the community in ways we can't ourselves, such as a crisis pregnancy center and so forth, right? So this is just to accentuate it. As we enter into the holidays, this week of Thanksgiving, and this is one of those times of the years when we need to use the benevolent fund. So this morning we'll finish with that. If you weren't prepared for that, don't worry. Again, you can give it any time, but we are doing it publicly to remind ourselves of what it is that we are to, to do, is to be caring for the poor as well. So let me pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for this time.